0: Fusion is not the kind of energy source like solar (laughs) or lithium batteries. It's just inherent in the physics that it's going to be big and it's not going to be cheap.
1: This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. It's our 20th episode, and I want to thank all of our guests, listeners, friends, and family for your support. I'm proud of the content we put out there, and I already have interviews banked up for episode 30. Today is a very special episode because we'll be covering the energy source that's probably most mysterious to our listeners and my guests, nuclear fusion. Those who've tuned in before are familiar with my post-interview lightning round, and when I ask my guests about nuclear fusion, the answer seem to go like this. An interesting technology that has been on the horizon for decades. It's a hoax. Not knowledgeable enough to even talk about. Don't know enough about it to comment.
0: I don't see it. (laughs) If you can figure out how
1: to do it, it's the holy grail. And There you are. Probably all will be dead. The concept is so fantastical and futuristic that it often comes off as a punchline at the end of these interviews. Yet billions of dollars and decades of research have been spent trying to bring the future into the present. There may never be another technical breakthrough as ambitious as industrial scale fusion power, save breaking the speed of light.
0: Warp drive, Mr. Scott.
1: But if it is so seemingly unattainable, why should we care? Well, well, for those that believe that this Earth has finite resources and our ultimate pinnacle is abundant carbon-free energy, nuclear fusion is the goal. It could generate gigawatts of power at a single location and there are no toxic byproducts. No large-scale baseload energy source on the Earth satisfies all these benefits. And if you truly believe that this is one Gaia, and like one of my earlier guests said, carbon emissions really need to end by this century, there isn't much else to choose from. But fusion does have two big drawbacks, time and money. As our guest today demonstrates, the quest for industrial-scale fusion power will be a multi-generational project. It's not going to take years. It's going to take decades. And it's not going to take millions of dollars, it's going to take tens of billions of dollars just to create a working prototype. If you're a venture capitalist or a multinational company, this business model is practically incompatible with your goals. That's why the weight of this project rests on a coalition of nations. So what is fusion exactly? Well, we see it every time we look up at the sky. The sun and the stars are fusion reactors. Fusion power is no less than the attempt to create a small star on earth. There are several designs out there, but the core principle is fusing two hydrogen atoms into helium. You'll remember in high school chemistry that hydrogen with two neutrons is called deuterium, and three neutrons is tritium. When they fuse, it produces a helium atom, a neutron, and lots of heat. Procuring this fuel is the easy part. Deuterium, for instance, occurs naturally in molecules of water. It just needs to be separated out and converted into hydrogen. The challenge is how to combine this reaction so that fusion can occur. In the vacuum of space, the sun and stars do this by gravity. Here on Earth, It requires complex magnetic fields and chambers to contain the reaction. And this is where the dollars and the birthdays begin to add up. In a way, that confinement chamber is a perfect analogy for humankind's pursuit of fusion power. Can a coalition of nations stay together long enough for a reaction to occur? Perhaps only our grandkids will know the answer. Our guest today is Steve Dean, co-founder and president of Fusion Power Associates, a nonprofit foundation for the fusion power sector. The foundation was formed in 1979. Steve is a physicist and engineer who's been involved in the fusion power sector for over 50 years. He holds degrees from Boston College and MIT. In the 70s, he led a group that provided the basis for the Magnetic Fusion Act of 1980, signed into law by Jimmy Carter. I sat down with Steve at his office outside of Washington, 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 D.C. It was filled with memorabilia and photos documenting our long progression towards the ultimate energy source. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Dean. We're here with Steve Dean, president of Fusion Power Associates. Tell us about this organization and what you do.
0: Well, I formed this organization in 1979. And our goal was to expedite the development of Fusion as an energy source by working with all of the players. Since then, Fusion has evolved in a way that the industries were sort of let go by the government to save money and because they weren't serious about the development. So what happened to our organization was we transitioned from the most mostly industry, to mostly government national laboratories and major universities. And what we do is we try to make sure that they're all talking to each other and they're not all just working on their own thing and bad-mouthing everybody else. (laughs) And we try to keep people aware that fusion is around and that it's not moving quite as fast as we would like. In the United States, Korea, for example, and China, and even Europeans, they all have a game plan for putting fusion electricity on the grid. Mm -hmm. The US doesn't talk about any kind of plan. You probably know there's a big international machine being built in France, which is a collaboration of seven different countries mostly. And the United States refused to even offer a site for that. They knew that the place where the site was would have to put in the most money towards the project. (laughs) When we try to get money for our participation, the Congress says, oh, this money is going overseas. Why, we should be spending our money here, you know. And we try to tell them that we're building equipment to go over there, but we're building it here. (laughs) I do believe that at At this point, it's so international that we have to do it in a way that allows us to be full participants in whatever happens. And if somebody else builds the first power plant first, and if we're on board, our companies can come in and start building up and catching up because our industry is very good. The other thing I do a lot is to make sure that because most of the world effort is on a concept called the tokamak, which was invented by the Russians, there are other ideas around that could catch up or could be better that the government is not doing. now because their money is all consumed in this tokamak project I try to keep that hope alive, that there is something better. But I also try to calm those guys down a little bit to say, look, I think you're great. I think you got a good idea. I think you ought to be funded more than you are. But I can't come out and say that you're going to do it in 10 years. Fusion is not the kind of energy source like solar (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or lithium batteries. It's just inherent in the physics that it's going to be big and it's
1: not going to be cheap. Your organization's mission is to provide information on the status of nuclear fusion development. How is it developing?
0: It's not ever found a physics basis for saying it won't work. It's clear that fusion will work. It's just a question of how expensive is it going to be and how complicated is the engineering going to be in order for it to be commercially competitive. There are so many ways to make electricity that are well-established, that are relatively cheap, and the technologies are simpler than doing it by fusion. But if you look overseas, where maybe they don't have coal or they have to import their natural gas and their governments are much more dominant in deciding what's done. If the government decides we're going to have our grid be fusion that will happen regardless if something else is cheaper. We in the US are right to be concerned that maybe we can't compete here. But that doesn't mean we can't compete selling them to somebody else. And we could sell them to China if China decides. Give us a fifth grade lesson on nuclear fusion. Well, usually what we say is look at the sun and look at the stars. And they're all fusion reactors. And we're going to mimic that. We are going to create a miniature sun on the earth. The second thing we say is the fuel for fusion is hydrogen that you combine to make helium. And hydrogen is is probably the most common element in the world. We use a form of hydrogen, which is an isotope, which is called heavy hydrogen. It's in the water in like one part in 6,000, and it's easy to get it out. The fuel is universally available to everybody, so we don't have to fight a war to get the fuel for fusion because you have it in your rivers and you have it in the ocean. And the third thing we say is the product of fusion, when you combine hydrogen to make helium, the, quote, waste product is helium. It's not radioactive. Active, helium is actually a valuable product. Now some people will point out that there is some radioactivity in fusion because the other isotope we use is tritium, which is mildly radioactive, I mean you could drink some tritiated water and flush it out of your system in a day with a few beers <laughs> and it isn't long live. Now some people will point out that the other demonstration that fusion is real is the hydrogen bomb <laughs> and that also brings you into a comparison between fusion reactors and fission reactors of today. which is that pound per pound of fuel, fusion reactors put out way more energy than fission reactors. And also moving hydrogen around is a lot easier than mining uranium and then enriching it and so on and so forth. So on the fuel side and on the waste side, fusion is much superior.
1: One of the challenges is the need to get the ball rolling by heating hydrogen atoms to 100 million degrees. How
0: is that accomplished? Well, first of all, it sounds incredible, but it's actually been done many times in very small devices. It's not that hard. And the reason is you have to think of temperature in a different way. We think of temperature as being, you touch this, if it's really hot, it's really hot. But it's not just the temperature that's involved. It's the density of what you've raised the temperature to. If the gas is very dilute, let's say it's a vacuum and there's only a few particles in there, but they're all moving very fast. Mm -hmm. We say they're 100 million degrees because they're moving very fast but maybe there's only three or four particles in there or some small number of particles so if it was a hundred million degrees or a billion degrees you could put your finger in there and you wouldn't feel anything you're measuring the speed of the atoms yeah the hundred million yeah. is really the speed you know we convert it to degrees but we really work scientifically in fusion in kilovolts what we really need is 50 kilovolts if you look into an operating fusion reactor everything is ionized in there and so it's not giving out any light and the density of the gas in there is like uh, a million times less than the density of air in this room. And so how is the temperature maintained? Does fusion continue once the reaction begins? Or is something always keeping that catalyzed? Well, this depends how you do it. And it's one of the biggest problems. And that's an engineering problem. But it's also partly a physics problem, because you have to figure all of these things out together. So what we do in almost all experiments is you build something that you can afford, and that means you do it for a short pulse. And that's all that's needed to understand what's going on. But we are also at a point, having done so much physics, that people are starting to want to do it for a longer time. They run for a few seconds on a pulse, and then maybe 15 minutes later, you do another one. The experiment that's being built in France, it's going to run for 15 minutes at a time. Now, why not 15 hours? You need to have more equipment for that. Now, 15 minutes in fusion terms, scientifically, is a lifetime because mm-hmm. they need know that if you can do it for 15 minutes, all it needs is more power supplies and equipment to keep everything going all day. The second point is that most of the experiments are done using magnets to keep the plasma, the fusion fuel where it belongs. Most of them are done with copper magnets. And copper magnets consume a lot of power, But in the end, fusion reactors are going to run on superconducting magnets, because superconducting magnets, once you get them cooled down and get the current flowing in them, and as long as you keep them cold, they don't consume any power to speak of at all. Once you've got your experiment going with superconducting magnets, it's sitting there ready to be used all the time. (laughs) So once you get it going, and you've made the fusion density and temperature that you want, it should self-sustain. And it self-sustains because some of the fusion products the helium is heavy enough that it heats anything else you put in. So you just have to feed in cold gas, basically. There's a whole other approach using lasers. They're inherently pulsed, and in that case, to keep them going all day, what you have to do is have something like a gasoline engine that runs, you know, like this, (laughs) with pistons. You drop little pellets with fusion fuel in it, you hit it with a laser once. Probably in most power plant designs, with a laser, you have to hit it like 10 times a second. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There are concepts of this that maybe only do it once every 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. It's never been done because you have to actually track the pellet and actually hit it exactly right. Otherwise (laughs) if you miss it, you know it's not done to anything.
1: So is it like a nuclear reactor and coal generation where you're producing heat and then that's running a steam turbine or
0: is fusion creating electricity just from the
1: reaction?
0: It can be either way. Probably the first ones will use the most conventional technology around. When deuterium and tritium fuse to make fusion, two things come out. One is this helium, Mm -hmm. the other is a very fast neutron. Mm -hmm. This fast neutron goes out into what we call a blanket, and its energy gets absorbed as heat. But because you've got the helium also, it's charged. And so some of these concepts we have involve what we call direct conversion. You send it out along a magnetic field line and you run it up against a maybe electrostatic grid, and that converts the kinetic energy into electricity directly. And that saves you on the inefficiency of the heat cycle. And there's other ways to do it with fusion, what's called MHD generators by just pulsing the fusion plasma against the magnetic field, making basically your own generator like a motor. Who is working to commercialize this technology right now? Who are the big
1: players? I know there's TriAlpha out in California, most of them are out west, right?
0: It's a little misleading to call most of these people big. (laughs) They're very small compared to the government's projects that have already been built. I've been to TriAlpha previously. They are the biggest by far of any of these small companies projects that you hear about they're not the only people that are using what's called the field reversed concept which is that you make a little blob of plasma by a trick of running a current around in it which creates its own magnetic field and it confines the blob it's very elegant in principle but the problem is that they're unstable mm-hmm. and so even though well, as long as this current is running around they're there the magnetic field that's out here wants to flip around like a top people have worked for years trying to figure out how big you have to make them? How much current you need? And the tri-alpha people were able to, by continuing to put beams in, mm-hmm. keep the current going for like five milliseconds instead of one. Scientifically, it was a breakthrough of sorts because it demonstrated it wasn't inherent that these things would always go unstable if you kept driving them. It's the same old reason. They could get so much money and so much equipment, so the best they could do was five, and they did five, and that was a demonstration. They tried to raise money to make a big step, so they got as much money as they could and they rebuilt their machine. They tore the whole machine down and over the last year, they made the machine longer so that they can make a bigger plasma and they bought more beams to put in that they could go in for a longer time frame. Now they're just coming back in operation. They definitely plan to be able to sustain this for a longer time and that's another big demonstration. The next machine it's going to really make fusion on the scale that they want to do because they want to move fast. They don't want to take 30 years. So they're going to want to take a much bigger step than most conservative people would normally take and they need a lot more money and it's going to take them longer to build it.
1: What is a lot of money? Like a hundred million dollars? No, no.
0: Even the modest size experiments run at 50 million dollars a year and cost 50 million dollars to build. But to build a operating fusion device, no matter how smart you are and how innovative and, quote, smaller it is than the big ones, you don't do it for less than a billion dollars just for the investment of the equipment and the infrastructure and the building, and it's not possible. And that would be
1: a, a billion dollars to build a reactor that you believe could be 100% sustaining? Are we still talking about yes. middle seconds and well, a few I'm minutes? Well, I'd
0: say at le- it would cost you at least a billion in order to do a significant test and demonstrate that you are making fusion and you've solved essentially all of the questions about the engineering and you got a good credible story about how you go build a demonstration plant that's actually putting stuff on the grid. You're not gonna have something that's running all day and putting electricity on the grid for a billion dollars. That's gonna cost a couple billion anyway. This one in France that we're building, this big tokamak, it started out, it was gonna be five billion dollars and that seemed like a reasonable number for building something that was gonna put out electricity but was gonna make net energy regularly for fifteen minutes at a time. And we went in for ten percent. That was supposed to cost us five hundred million. It very quickly went to ten. It's now even at the minimum people recognize it's gonna cost twenty. Some people in the government review panels think it's gonna cost us six billion, which would make this project sixty billion. <laughs> from five. And a lot of the problem here is that the schedule has slipped. Money is still being spent. It was supposed to be running last year. Yeah. And it started really in earnest in around 2006. It was supposed to take 10 years. It's now gonna turn on partially in like 2027, and that's just a test in simple hydrogen. It's going to be mid-30s before they're actually full-blown experiments. So now it's a 30-year construction project oh, instead wow. of a 10. That's a major reason for these numbers going up. And the other is that, you know, it wasn't fully designed when they made the original estimates. a lot of engineering drawings and weren't done, and there were a lot of changes that were made, you know, as people started to do things well. You know, you don't want to do it this way. You got to do it this way, and these <laughs> things won't fit together the way you had a design before. So we got to change everything. and
1: sounds to me like they were using Agile. Some of my project <laughs> manager listeners will understand what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Why haven't we seen the standard bearers or Fission? And look, I know Westinghouse is going through what it's going through right now, but the GEs of the world, the, who else is Mitsubishi, I think. Why haven't we seen those big stalwarts of that technology getting into Fusion at
0: all? Well, this is a story of my life and the, when I first started this. When I started, I started it with industry. I had, I think, 10 charter company members, and they included Westinghouse, and they included McDonnell Douglas at the time, which is now owned by Boeing. They included Mitsubishi. (laughs) And those were the people I wanted get involved and then what I learned is that the industries were coming in because the Congress in the US had just passed what was called the Magnetic Fusion Engineering Act of 1980 that said we were going to do this in 20 years Mm -hmm. for 20 billion dollars and so they all thought this was a serious thing what they really started to do is they looked for government support and contracts so they thought that when this whole thing got rolling the government was going to pay for it and the government was going to contract with them to do it and therefore. They were getting ready for big government contracts. When after five years or so, these contracts were not coming through, Mm -hmm. the company said, why are we in this? We're not gonna do it ourselves. We're not gonna invest our own money. It's too uncertain. The payback time is too long. They could see that they weren't gonna be building fusion plants. Electric utilities were not gonna be placing orders for fusion plants in the next five years, and therefore they were not gonna spend their own R&D money on doing it. They all pretty much dropped out.
1: You talked a little bit about Some of these companies are able to sustain a plasma field longer and everything. What are some other big breakthroughs that you're seeing in recent years? I think you said that some of the other companies are finding ways to just make it simpler.
0: This tokamak, which the Russians had the first breakthrough in fusion back in like 1969, and what happened was it was so stunning that we took some of our machines, which were called Stellarators, and we converted them to tokamaks, mm-hmm. and we started building a few small tokamaks. And everybody around the world started trying to duplicate the Russian work by building tokamaks. They're shaped like a donut. The reason for that is if you've made it straight, when your particles are moving really fast, they go real fast out the end and they're mm-hmm. not around for very long so you make a to make it go round and round on itself so it doesn't get out these smaller companies what they recognize that all the tokamak people refuse to admit to or accept is that it's not the most attractive geometry for a power plant mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of wasted space <laughs> in the middle that's one of the reasons they're so big and expensive is that this shape and that's why one of the ways at Trialpha, alpha the machine is straight mm-hmm. but this plasma blob that I mentioned with the current drive net is confined as a sphere, but it's in the middle of a long straight tube. Okay. Well, a long straight tube is the utilities love long straight tubes, right? All of their power plants are cylinders. They may be up <laughs> right. on their end, but they're <laughs> you know they're not donuts, right? Yeah, yeah. Is this different from an antimatter reaction? Totally. The problem with antimatter is one thing, you have to make antimatter. Antimatter doesn't exist in the universe. Otherwise, everything would be gone because antimatter combines with real matter (laughs) to disappear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's extremely expensive to make antimatter, and antimatter by its very nature, as soon as it encounters matter, disappears, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. You may think you get back some energy when it combines, but you've already paid huge amounts of energy to make it in the first place, and you can't make it in bulk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Antimatter is made like particles, you know, like Higgs bosons and things. You, you think you see it, <laughs> and it's gone. Yeah. So you infer it. But you don't make it, you don't store it, you know, you can't use it as a fuel.
1: So say in the future around the year 2100 or whenever they're saying it would be it'd be out there. If that happened would there pretty much be any room left in the portfolio for anything else? Would we see coal plants at that point? Would we see wind turbines?
0: Hard to say. Yeah. For the next hundred years, at least, it would just be one in the mix. There's no getting around the fact that there'd have to be a transition. For at least a hundred years or more, no one of these technologies is gonna drive everybody else out of business, in my opinion. There'll always be hydro, there'll always be solar, there'll always be wind. There'll probably always be nuclear. Fusion could displace nuclear if it became really competitive or if the anti-nuclear trend were to really take off and people said, well, we just can't have this wastes being stored and fission reactors we were talking about electricity but one of the places where fusion could compete probably is if the world really becomes heavily fission oriented and something has to be done with the waste fusion reactors can actually destroy nuclear waste because our neutrons are much faster than the fission neutrons and they can transmute the fission waste into stable non-radioactive products and you can do it on an industrial scale because fusion reactors would be very big and you make a big industrial plant with a huge fusion reactor and it would be coming out stable at the other end.
1: I'm gonna finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies and this is really fun for me because we've done nuclear fusion and and it's always an interesting answer from the different people, natural gas.
0: It's better than coal, it's less polluting than coal but it's not clean. Mm -hmm. It's still putting carbon into the atmosphere and I think it's going to be around for quite a while. Crude oil going uh, to also be around for a long time. I mean, people keep saying that it's topped out and it's going to go down, but then it keeps being around. So I think we're so heavily used to it, especially in automobiles and things, that crude oil will be around for making gasoline, especially.
1: Nuclear, and I guess for this gas, nuclear fission, I should
0: say. You know, the nice thing about fission is that it's relatively simple. The technology is well-developed. The power plants are clean. They don't put out pollutants into the air, but they have a waste problem that nobody yet has figured out what to do with them. In many places, uh, they've gotten stopped altogether. I think they'll make a comeback in the U.S. to some degree, but they're over-regulated too. I don't know that the regulations are unfair because of the safety issues, and they've been improve their designs because of the overregulation, but the heavy regulation has driven up their costs. And therefore, they're not competing at the moment with other ways to make electricity. Coal. I think coal has been around for hundreds of years, and it's a simple thing to burn. <laughs> but I've been to a lot of huge coal plants, and they are big. And it's astounding to see the number of coal cars that go in every day and the number of coal cars that have to go out with the ash. You know, I think their pollutants can be controlled with scrubbers and things like that. So I think they're going to be around too. But natural gas is displacing them. It's not nuclear or fission or other things that's displaced them. But I just saw a thing the other day where natural gas is providing more of our electricity than coal. Wind. I'm astounded by the progress that's been made in wind and solar, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, I would have just pointed out that there's such a small sub-percentage fraction of the grid that they're just not in play. But it's clear that wind is making big inroads. They're now on the map. So I think wind is here to stay and they're going to make a substantial fraction and I think solar too is coming on. I don't think they've been hit by environmentalists the way they should be hit for the mining that has to go on to get the raw materials for the processing of the cells but uh, you know there is some waste products there that have to be dealt with but they're neat. <laughs> Especially for small scale stuff. Biofuels. I think they're overplayed you know it seems like the agriculture people are saying that they're doing more damage to agriculture than their benefit that they're giving to put them in the gasoline and stuff like that. One thing you might not mention but but it's related to biofuels is burning waste and actually converting the waste heat into electrical power and that's done apparently quite extensively in Europe. And that's another possible application for fusion is to uh, return products back into their elemental form. Fuel cells. I think fuel cells are probably going to make it eventually as a way to drive cars. They're more elegant, I think, than having to go charge your battery frequently.
1: Hydroelectric.
0: You keep hearing that hydroelectric's panned out. There isn't any more places to do it. But then you keep hearing that people are doing it. It's certainly a simple way to make it. When I was in college, I worked in building the dam up in Niagara Falls. These hydroelectric dams are pretty impressive Mm -hmm. undertakings, but you still have to dig canals to get them to the right place and everything. So there may be a lot of hydroelectric possibilities in developing countries. I don't think developing countries are going to want fission or fusion reactors for a long time. They are going to have to use simpler things and that's why there's still going to be a lot of burning of fossil fuels for all kinds of purposes in the developing world, I think. Geothermal. Seems to be pretty practical. It doesn't seem to be taking off at all in any significant scale,
1: electric vehicles?
0: I think they're the wave of the future. I think they're going to come on. They're coming on slowly but surely. As I say, my son has two and he loves them. Gasoline's going to run cars be the dominant way for a long time. But I think electric cars are coming on. And then finally,
1: nuclear fusion.
0: Nuclear fusion, I, you know, I, I wish I, when I got into this, you know, I guess almost 50 years ago out of school, I thought they'd been making electricity by now. I'm disappointed. I don't even think it can get on now in my son's lifetime, but I think it can be done by 2035, but more common is 2050, but I think it could easily slip to 2070. You know, I think that the turn of the century will have more than one fusion power plant operating. <laughs> I think it could be the power source of the 22nd century. Even when it comes on, it's not gonna displace anything else to any big degree very fast.
1: Well, all great things do take time. I appreciate it. Steve Dean, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. That was Steve Dean, co-founder and president of Fusion Power Associates. It was a real honor to get to meet the man who has probably done more for this technology than anyone else in the country. And it was a real thrill to get a little tour around his office, where he showed me photos of him with then Vice President George H.W. Bush and some of the earlier experiments in Fusion Power. He also handed me a copy of his book, Search for the Ultimate Energy Source, which was published in 2013. You can find all these pictures from my visit and links at energy-cast.com. We're also on Instagram at Host Energy. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. All guests on this program are sent the raw and finished audio the week of release to ensure they have been depicted fairly. So far, no complaints. That wraps up episode 20. Be sure to join us next week when we talk to a former Undersecretary of Energy and out outgoing CEO, about how she has worked to bring exciting new innovations to hydroelectric power. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.